Welcome to the Medicare Meetup. I'm Meg Kepke, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Melissa Cohen. This podcast is brought to you by Arrera Health Group, where Melissa and I are building a mission-driven policy, strategy, and operations practice devoted to making Medicare better. As part of our Listen As We Launch effort, we're meeting with people we know and trust in the field and sharing those conversations with you. Some of the voices will be familiar, but we also hope a few will be new to you. Tune in weekly for fresh content and be sure to tell us what you think. In today's podcast, we talk to Mai Pham, physician, former chief innovation officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and founder of the Institute for Exceptional Care. Good afternoon, Melissa. It's finally here, the first day of the Medicare meetup. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good because I know that we work well together, but this podcasting thing is very new. Very new. And fair to say, not our day job. So our spouses don't need to worry. We're not quitting our day jobs. Meg, what should people expect from the Medicare meetup? I think people can expect that we'll be ourselves after we get past some of this initial fear of flying. And we'll have great conversations with some excellent thinkers and doers in Medicare and healthcare spaces more broadly. But why a podcast? Because people are tired of Zoom. Yes, they are. (laughs) And even more so the dreaded webinar. But uh, but seriously, I mean, we live in an on-demand world. We're launching a new healthcare consulting practice. Healthcare consulting is not new, but we are trying for something a little different. We're trying for mission-driven and really focused on making Medicare better. So we wanted a way to share what we're doing, give people a chance to get to know us, and frankly, get re-inspired. You and I were very inspired and had such a strong passion together when we worked together at the CMS Innovation Center. Absolutely. I mean, we were really connected to the work. And Patrick Conway used to say at the end of uh, some long front office meeting, he'd say like, changing healthcare in America. And it was meant to be sort of tongue in cheek and funny. But we did. We really felt like we were changing healthcare in America and trying to do so in the right ways and for the right reasons. And now four score and one global pandemic later, there's a need for a new sort of hopefulness. We thought a podcast with short 10 minute episodes might be the right size and shape for this moment. Has this already been 10 minutes? though? Pretty much. (laughs) This first episode is not going to live up to our aim of being just 10 to 15 minutes long. It's going to be a little longer, but it's the first one. So we figure that's okay. Uh, Before you introduce our first guest, though, I have a quick question for you. Okay. Do you remember when we first met? I have no idea. I knew that would be your answer. I was in Baltimore interviewing with the Seamless Care Models Group, meeting the team, and I had this distinct impression that you had been hard at work in your cube. In front of a big orange wall? Yes, big orange wall, because orange and lime green are the colors of innovation. Everybody knows that. Anyway, uh, someone must have grabbed your hand on the way to the room and said something like, come on, we're meeting some woman. We don't know who she is or what she's here for, but Mai said we should meet with her. That sounds like how we did all of our interviews. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. I remember thinking this woman is smart and also thinking that you were perhaps very annoyed or had an intense amount of work waiting back for you at your desk. Naturally, but that is because we were actually designing the Next Generation ACO program. Yes, indeed. And Next Gen is in the news right now. So after all of the, uh, the hullabaloo, Uh, with the direct contracting model that had been developed under the last administration and was set to have second application season this spring. The change in administration, they announced back in April that there would be no second application season and that next generation ACO program would come to its natural end at the end of this year. 
And they have just recently announced that they will allow for next-gen ACOs to enroll in direct contracting. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yes, it will. And now, after this lovely, nostalgic reminisce, let's go ahead and introduce our next guest. It is very fitting that we are about to engage in a conversation with Dr. Mai Pham. I first met Mai in 2011 when we were both early staffers at the CMS Innovation Center. She has shown me a lot over the years, but it all started with a demonstration of how you can move a team of actuaries to work through the night with a plate of homemade biscotti, baking her way to healthcare transformation. My FOM, MD, PhD, is a general internist that has published extensively on payment policy and care fragmentation. As I just noted, she was a founding official and the chief innovation officer at CMMI. She then moved on to Anthem, where she oversaw the development of new products and networks built on a foundation of value-based care and has now just recently founded a nonprofit, the Institute for Exceptional Care, which is working to revolutionize healthcare for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Mai, welcome to the Medicare Meetup. Thanks so much, Melissa. It's great to reunite. <laughs> so let's get started with the Institute for Exceptional Care. You just made a major career change after decades, not to age you, you look great, doing research and driving policy for healthcare transformation, you're jumping into the nonprofit world. In a few sentences, can you tell us a little bit about the Institute for Exceptional Care and why you made the jump? Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, I think that while I was working in government and at Anthem, we sometimes forget that we all also have families. And I was mothering. And the second of our two sons is autistic, Alexander. He's a great kid, but he definitely had his challenges. And when we survived his first real crisis in high school, I had a revelatory moment, half of which was, wow, I had no idea that families with IDD live this way. And I was Medicare's chief innovation officer, and it was in my house, which makes, I think, me fairly typical of general healthcare leaders. It's um, unfortunate to say. But the other half of the revelation was that it seemed like we had developed all kinds of strategies to move forward care transformation in other arenas of healthcare, and it seemed like this space serving people with IDD could really use some adaptations of those strategies. So it was just a chance to marry a personal passion and a professional passion. And what we're doing is trying to trying to acknowledge the reality that I think general health care is a really outdated notion of what this population is. Mm -hmm. I think it's very reflexive for many of us to assume that it's small, it has needs that are difficult to understand, difficult to address, and that people with IDD should really be shunted off over there into a niche with specialized providers. But the reality is it's a huge population, somewhere between 10 and 16 million people, and you can't serve that many people at centers of excellence. So the rest of us have to step up because people like Alexander, my son, rely on the same healthcare system that you and I do. And uh, and we know how to we know how to move that forward. We've done it before. So it's just a matter of positive will. And I heard you say that you are adapting some of the lessons that you learned from your work at CMS and Anthem 
uh, into the work at the Institute for Exceptional Care. Can you uh, talk a little bit about what those lessons were? <laughs> well, they they won't be directly applicable to IEC, but uh, you know, at a high level, what I'll say is I think what we've learned through the, the last 10 years of experimentation in no particular order are that one there are certain kinds of foundational elements mm-hmm. that once you can build them, they can really unlock healthcare markets, right? So the fact that HHS spent so much time, energy, and political capital generating momentum in the marketplace for people to really pay attention to the goals of value-based care and to invest in them, that opened up whole new sub-industries in healthcare. For sure. <laughs> for sure, to support this kind of work. And that's very similar to what we're trying to do with IEC. I think more specifically in value-based care, you know, we, we've learned a lot of things. We've learned that not all providers are the same. <laughs> and you have to kind of both meet people where they are when they begin their journey, but also send clear signals that people can't just stand still. And uh, and so we can have lots of conversation about what that looks like in general value-based care. But um, but I think, you know, we've we've learned that you can't treat market leaders as if they are the stragglers and you can't let the stragglers get away with it. And I think we've we've also learned that, and I'm moving ahead now 10 years to the environment over the past year and a half mm-hmm. in this country with not just the pandemic, but all the conversations around social justice and health equity. We've learned that, in fact, healthcare is capable of looking beyond its four walls and capable of doing that in a really deliberate way with real resources and concrete processes, you know, for collaborating with other service sectors, for really taking on accountability for, at the very least, not contributing further to disparities and at our best trying to solve them through a variety of means. Those are a couple of high-level lessons learned, but I have a feeling you're going to ask me about money. Actually, not payment, but payment adjacent. I was going to ask you about payers. Policy in IDD is usually done in the Medicaid space. Uh, What do you see as the role for private payers for the Medicare program? So I think that it's not as different as people may assume. For sure, the financing mechanisms are different because there are concrete Medicaid waivers that pay for additional services that don't have direct parallels in commercial or in Medicare. On the other hand, commercial payers have a lot of flexibility to decide what it is they want to cover and pay for, um, and they negotiate that with their employer clients. So I think that there is a role for a broad swath of the IDD population, not just those who qualify for Medicaid or who are duly eligible, to benefit from a more kind of deliberate partnership between clinical care world and home and community-based services, disability services, education. It's really a matter of, one, educating clinicians because, frankly, the, the clinical arena is probably the farthest behind in terms of being aware of the other sectors and understanding what they do and what they can contribute to whole health. So there's just a lot of education to be done. I also think that private payers are starting to, at least some of them, starting to learn and appreciate what kinds of returns they can get 
from engaging those other sectors. There are a number of states now that are carving in services for people with IDD in Medicaid, and some of them even have established or are in the process of standing up tailored health plans for people with IDD. You know, it remains to be seen how successful those will be, but it's an, an acknowledgement that sometimes, in theory, it makes sense to have the same entity accountable for both clinical and non-clinical services and and have all of that coordination be done under one house. I think it's an open question about what clinicians' role should ideally be, and, and that inevitably gets linked to payment and questions of accountability. I think it's not entirely clear, and it's a really important question that IEC wants to explore, to look at current care coordination models and to learn from their their practices, their lessons on the ground. You know, does it make sense for healthcare to take control and be that hub of coordination, or does it make more sense for healthcare to be the partner that responds? Um, when other service sectors unearth the needs. Could I put a fine point on the question around Medicaid and Medicare for UMI and just say that I think the solution that a lot of people might assume in the industry is that solving for the inadequacies and gaps in care for the IDD population needs to happen and is going to happen through Medicaid. Yes. And um, I think what we've heard you say is yes and and wondering what you think the particular role for Medicare is, and and maybe just articulating why it's also a need and a, um, in Medicare. Well, the why is really basic. Most people with IDD don't actually qualify for Medicaid. It's, it's paradoxical and counterintuitive, but that's the reality. Now, people who have um, greater degrees of of need and impairment are more likely to be on Medicaid and eventually SSI insurance, but it's not a given uh, depending on the state that you live in. So every insurance segment has people with IDD in it and have an interest in getting it as right as possible. I think one thing that uh, you know, we, we hope to explore more analytically is our suspicion that some part of this population lurks in what people call high cost, high need. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not labeled clearly as also having IDD. And one can imagine if you understand this population and how the challenges they face in trying to navigate services, in trying to follow care recommendations, in going through some fairly simple process steps in in getting care and seeking care, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that, you know, it's probably harder to manage their care. And that's if you knew they had IDD. If you weren't aware that they have IDD, you're going to be, you as the payer or as the, as the clinical organization are going to be experiencing the consequences without understanding why. You're not going to understand why there's unnecessary ED utilization or unnecessary hospitalizations or unnecessary sedation um, if you don't get at the underlying root cause. It's interesting that you speak about the IDD population being in the mix of those high-cost, high-need patients. Identifying high-cost, high-need is a lot of what ACOs are supposed to be doing by shifting accountability down to the providers. How well do you think this is working? I think that it is as essential 
an option in our toolkit for getting to higher value care as anything else we've come up with. Do I think that it is the magic bullet that will work for every organization under every circumstance? No. And I think that different organizations, there's no one ACO model, if you will. I don't mean the payment structure. I mean, there's no one model that every clinical organization is following to go about doing its work. And the different strategies all add up to something. So it makes it makes a lot of difference whether you've picked the right strategies, how how much fidelity there is when you go to execute those strategies. I mean, Meg knows, and, and you know from the payer side, you can have a great plan, but if you're not consistently executing, it won't much matter. So I think it's it's here to stay, the transfer of accountability, how adept clinical organizations, clinical providers, and, and health plans as their partners, payers as their partners, get at doing that. Um, that's going to continue to vary a lot. We know that change is hard, um, not just all change, but that particular change in healthcare transformation. I mean, the early days of Pioneer told us a lot hinges on your prior experience in Medicare Advantage, a lot hinges on your um, institutional will and your gut, your fortitude, uh, your leadership, staying consistent and keeping that priority at the forefront and not letting other priorities, you know, sideline it. When I think about how hard that changes, it's, it's, it's good change and it's change for the right reasons. So it has that, it has that innateness to it. And your health system change for populations that are intellectually and developmentally disabled will have that same heart to it, right? It, this is what provide. This is the care that providers want to be giving. This is the change is something we would all want for our own families, but it will be hard too. And I'm curious, you know, what keeps you hopeful in this work, and how you think about when when you present on the Institute for Exceptional Care to new audiences. And you find them agreeing with you, but also embracing how difficult it is. How do you stay hopeful? I cling to a few things. One, my touchstone is always Alexander. It's amazing what a mother's sense of urgency can drive you to do. I desperately need to assure myself that the world will be a safer place for him as he grows into his adulthood. I, the other reason that I'm optimistic is that this is one of those rare clinical phenomena that touches every stratum of society. The prevalence of IDD is the same across all geographic subgroups, all socioeconomic subgroups, all racial ethnic subgroups. Most of us are but one or two degrees of separation away from it, either in our own families or among our friends, people we love, take care of. It makes it so universal that it's difficult to run away from the empathy. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I cling to that. I also, you know, cling to what I remember being the motivation for going into clinical training is that we want to solve our patients' problems. And sometimes when we run into either a kind of patient or a kind of problem where we feel really stymied, it actually feels like we failed. So offering people an alternative explanation that it's actually the resources, the system, 
around you, the processes around you that can change, and then you don't have to feel like you failed, that, that, is, a, that is an open door for clinicians and clinical leaders to walk through. That is a happy place for them to be. When you talk about a neurodiverse, friendly healthcare system, what does that look like? So I think that's actually some work that needs to be done. I think there has been a lot of thought leadership in thinking through what that looks like. It it includes components like empathy and physical and process accommodations, things like using plain language as the default, things like being sensitive to other people's sensitivities about light and noise, maybe scheduling uh, patients who have sensory issues at very early or very late times in the day so they don't have to navigate crowded waiting rooms, et cetera. But it also means a certain kind of patience to acknowledge that every engagement you have with patients with IDD may look different. It may require trying multiple ways of communicating with them. It may require assuming that you need the caregiver in the room versus not. There's, you know, there's there's a range of competencies, a range of knowledge, and a range of attitudes, just to go back to the golden oldies, that I think add up to what what could be neurodiverse friendly care. I will also, you know, point out that in in our vision of the ideal world, when we get to that place and people with IDD can walk through most healthcare doors and find neurodiverse friendly care, in all likelihood, it means that other patients are being served better too, right? The analogy in my head is the curb cutouts. Right. They were built for people with wheelchairs, but man, it's awfully useful when you've got a luggage on your way to the airport or you're pushing a stroller. They help everyone because they just allow us to be more human. And at, at, at some point in our lives, we are all going to be disabled. It's just a question of the kind of disability and how the world greets us with that. I really like that analogy that you just gave. And I do think that a lot of the things that you mentioned around what a neurodiverse friendly healthcare system would look like applies to mainstream healthcare as well. Whole person care and having providers, clinicians um, look to each person and their individual needs really would be a lot of what the change that we want to see in healthcare. What do you think? that CMS or the staff at CMMI should be thinking about right now to turn that into a reality? Yeah, I think that there is a range of opportunities. At the most basic level, I think it would be fabulous if CMS and CMMI had someone designated to think about disability issues throughout all of the program design conversations. There is an office within the Medicaid center that focuses on uh, people with disabilities. But again, that's very focused on Medicaid mm -hmm. itself as opposed to the broader population. And I think if you had someone like that in the innovation center, you wouldn't have to silo the thinking around policies and programs for addressing racial ethnic disparities and then socioeconomic disparities and then urban rural disparities. I think you would have a tendency to simply think about all the intersections of those issues and those you know, challenges, and, um, and it would become a little more habitual 
in having those things show up in pro in the way that programs are designed. I think another other opportunities for CMS writ large are a little wonkier, but it goes back to what we have learned are the foundational elements, right? If you want to create a rational financing and payment system that performs well, you need some basic things like a performance measurement rubric, which, which doesn't, doesn't exist for people with IDD. And, uh, and, and you need it to be very different from the kind of HEDIS-based rubrics that we have had to date. Because frankly, when you ask people with disabilities what outcomes matter to them, which is where we should start, Always. Typically, they don't say breast cancer screening, right? They, they are much more likely to cite things like quality of life or good mental health. And there is no clinical practice guideline you can grab off the shelf for how do I improve functional status. So we're going to have to be thinking about a performance measurement approach that is much more person-driven than based on clinical guidelines. And then I think, that, you know, there are other wonky things like looking at, gee, how will we price these services in a world where ideally we want home and community-based and clinical actions to be thought of in the brain, you know, in, in the same space by decision makers? Well, then you have to think about pricing that differently. And you need a way to to stratify the relative costs of different subgroups. And so there, there are wonky technical issues that CMS can certainly invest in. But with this eye toward whole person health and across all segments of the population instead of this very, you know, singular historical focus on just the Medicaid population. Is there something that you know now that you wish you knew when the ACA was passed more than a decade ago? Hmm. I think I knew it even back then, but I think we've been in denial about it for the past 10 years which is that prices matter a lot. Prices matter a lot. We can throw all our all at trying to reduce utilization of services and trying to prevent unnecessary services and trying to get people preventive care. But what clogs up the system, what makes it so challenging to ask for more resources for things like home and community-based supports is that the system is churning with 70% of its costs in fixed costs that are priced higher than in any other OECD country. And I don't think that you need to leap forward to the premise that you have to somehow gut healthcare <laughs> and gut that entire sector of the economy in order to fix the problem. But could we just shave a little bit off the prices? I'm not asking for much. <laughs> just a little bit off the top, the very, very tippy top. Everybody give just a little bit. Because the counter, the, the other half of that picture is, frankly, when you've grown a sector to equal 20% of the economy, it is now on you to be accountable for more than just clinical outcomes. Right. So you have a choice to make. Amen. <laughs> you, you, you can meet us somewhere in the middle, give up a little on prices, take on some extra accountability, but you can't stay where you are. My, thank you so much for your time today and being willing to be our very first guest on the Medicare Meetup. If you want more information about our guest and her work to establish the Institute for Exceptional Care, you can visit them online at ie-care. Org. And be sure to tune in next week for our discussion with Nick Dawson, healthcare disruptor and eater of plants.
Intrigued? I think so. We will discuss the art and science of innovation and the life of a disruptor and this whole plant-eating business. See you next week. Well, that's it, listeners, for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Medicare Meetup. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to tell us. Share the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Arrera Health. That's A-U-R-R-E-R-A Health. If you have questions or thoughts about future guests, reach us at Medicare at ArreraHealth.com. Finally, before we go, have you hugged your Medicare loved one today? No? Do it now. Hugs are back. Medicare is destination health coverage. We all end up here if we're lucky. But isolation isn't the destination we want for ourselves or anyone we love. So reach out. Send a text or send mail. People love mail. And until next time, this has been Megan Melissa with your Medicare Meetup.